This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you. Thanks very much for your company. Coming up on this Thursday afternoon, the impact of last year's floods and an extremely wet spring across southern Australia is causing massive issues for those trying to produce hay. Incredibly difficult, boggy, complicated, you know, people pulling their hair out trying to to make hay amongst um, weekly rainfall events throughout October and November. We've never had a year like it. We'll hear more on that shortly, but what have you seen with your hay this year? It's definitely been... A lot harder to make hay and uh, definitely not while the sun shines, that's for sure. Send me a text. Are you finding it harder to produce good quality hay at the moment? 0467 922891. We'll get to that story very shortly. But first today, as the River Murray flood peak continues downstream, the focus begins to turn to recovery. So what lessons have been learned so far to help primary producers deal with future flood events? Minister Claire Scriven told Eliza Burlage that long-term planning will be important to minimise the effect of future disasters. There's still a lot of focus, rightly so, on the immediate recovery, what needs to be done today and tomorrow. It's early days in terms of thinking what needs to be done in four weeks, six weeks, six months. But I think one of the things that this sort of event shows is the importance of that long-term thinking and that long-term preparedness, and government will certainly be keen to assist wherever they can in making sure that that occurs. At last count, did you have a number of applicants so far for any of those schemes for, uh, for primary producers? Look, I think the um, irrigation grants were around about 35 uh, and uh, um, I think maybe about half a dozen or so for the federal, state joint funded grants. And are the applications that your government is seeing so far, are they coming um, more from the Murraylands or more from the Riverland or quite a spread? Uh, I think the initial grants are more from the Riverland in terms of the recovery ones, so that's a smaller number, uh, but it has been a spread in terms of the irrigation and infrastructure grants. So they, of course, were all about being as prepared as possible uh, as the peaks come through. And so uh, my department's been working very hard with primary producers, uh, particularly through the associations such as the SA Dairy Farmers Association uh, and others, so that they've been able to be as prepared as possible. It's a very difficult time, of course, for all primary producers and as indeed uh, everyone along the river. But I've been really impressed, particularly today with my visit to the Riverland, to see how well people are working together. The communities are really supporting uh, each other, you know, working with councils, working with government, working with other bodies to make sure that you know as much is being done as possible. Uh, and I think that's been really encouraging to see. Have they, have they received the funding yet though? I know that the department is working to get the funds uh, administered as early as possible and to streamline the processes as far as is possible. And just speaking of uh, the peak passing and I guess planning for future events, uh, hearing some discussion that even if there was just a a regular rainfall, regular rainfall events this year that uh, a lot of primary producers would be under pressure from from more flooding and and levees under pressure, uh, is your government looking at any measures to support primary producers in the event of further flooding? I think uh, in the first instance the the two major grant programs are a big part of that and I think that's something that 
communities and governments together will be turning their minds to is how we can future-proof our communities along the river. We're used to seeing floods of this sort of being sort of once every 50 years or so, but with the changes in climate, we're likely to see them being more frequent. And so it really does need that long-term view, uh, which government is very keen to be involved in. Would uh, your government consider any support for maybe the checking of private levies near agricultural properties to ensure that they have integrity and aren't breached like before? I think the focus on levies, whether they be you know owned by councils or, or privately owned levies, is something that is going to have attention going forward. Uh, it's clearly something that has had a lot of work invested in it in this last couple of months, and I know that the councils are talking about ways to make sure that the levies are maintained going forward and their, their integrity remains. I'm sure private uh, property owners are going to be thinking along the same lines, and that's part of the conversation that we'll be having going forward. Perhaps could someone like the ADF be involved with helping to check those private levies? I think it's probably a little premature to be looking at how that sort of operational question. Uh, we're certainly keen to continue to listen to the, uh, the river communities about how best they can be supported in, uh, in terms of preparedness going forward. Uh, and that's a conversation with multiple stakeholders from government, uh, councils, uh, residents, etc. Is the Primary Industries Department planning any further funding or assistance for flood-affected producers? Well, we're in constant conversation and discussion with primary producers in the region, uh, indeed uh, in other parts of the flood-affected uh, regions as well, uh, and I think there's been very positive response. I think... Uh, the feedback that I've had is that uh, many primary producers have been very pleased with the work that PERSA has been doing in supporting them uh, and in supporting some of their associations. Uh, but we'll continue to have those discussions. Uh, I've had very positive feedback about the grants that have been open, including the $75,000 grant that's uh, co-funded between federal and state government. Uh, and that's where I think people will be turning their attention soon uh, in terms of how they can best utilise that, whether it be for, for feed, whether it be for filters for water whether it be for all sorts of other situations because of course every primary producer has a different property and uh, and different challenges Uh, but the department is continuing to work closely with them and of course I'm also always very happy uh, to hear feedback and ideas from primary producers which is one of the reasons that I'm here in the Riverland today. State Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, speaking with Eliza Burlage in Berry yesterday. And uh, just speaking of the flooding, after 12.30, we'll hear um, from a dairy farmer around the Jervois region to see how that community is going as they uh, they wait for the flood waters to rise. To ports now and terminal access charges and industrial relations were identified as major areas for improvement by the Productivity Commissions in its final report on Australia's container ports. Port fees have soared in the past few years, putting pressure on export industries such as agriculture. The report found inefficiencies at Australia's major container ports cost the Australian economy about $600 million each year and listed 39 possible improvements. Brian Mousley from International Freight Forwarding and logistics company Taper Enterprises, which ships almost all of Australia's in-shell almond crop, says rising port costs is hurting his business. It's uh, an added uh, cost to uh, running a business. We have to fund those costs while we're waiting to be reimbursed by our customers. Uh, It adds another layer of administration to the whole Uh, process. It's necessitated the development of uh, software systems to be able to, uh, can I say, provide that service uh, and manage it. So yes, all of those costs 
invariably will get passed on to uh, our customer base. A recent Productivity Commission report recommended the federal government implement a mandatory industry code governed by the ACCC, which would potentially limit unjustified price hikes on port users. What's your view on that? Well, I wish them well. I can't remember in my lifetime uh, anything like that uh, happening with any great success. It requires a fair uh, fair amount of uh, attention by the uh, the federal government, the ACCC, to be able to do that. We, we haven't heard too much on an industry sort of level. I mean, sure, there's lots of uh, reports and there's a lot of talk, but we don't see too much in the way of any commitment by anyone to do anything. I mean... Overseas shipping lines have been a bit of a protected sort of species in this country and uh, the stevedoring industry, again, I stress because of mainly the size of uh, Australia as a trading nation, uh, the stevedoring companies are in a, a bit of a no-win situation. So I, I understand to a degree why they do what they do, but these price increases are just, they're just ongoing. It's, it's almost a non-stop procession of increase, increase, increase. Brian Mousley from Taper Enterprises speaking to Kelly Hollingworth. And meanwhile, the grain industry has welcomed the report and are pushing for some key recommendations to be implemented to boost productivity, keep costs down and improve transparency. Grain Growers Limited spokesman Zach Wales says about 11% of the nation's grain crop was exported in containers in the 2020-2021 season and efficient ports are critical. Being an export dominated industry, basically everything centres on the ability to get critical inputs into Australia and then on the other side of the coin get critical uh, exports back out to customers all over the world and, and if that maritime system doesn't function effectively that ultimately has a dollar impact uh, right back to the growers. How important is container freight for grain? Yeah, relative to bulk pathways, container containerised grain exports are relatively low, but they offer another avenue uh, for our exports onto international markets. And sometimes um, customers that buy our containerised grain aren't actually able to have uh, bulk vessels come into those ports. So it is an important pathway and it has really um, increased over, over years, but it is contingent on that maritime system working you know, effectively. And because grains um, are, are a relatively low-value commodity compared to other things that we export in containers, a... Um, skyrocketing prices have a much bigger impact on exports like grains and so we have to make sure that those prices can remain in check so that we can export containers competitively. So it could actually make some of those grains that go out in containers unviable? Absolutely. So skyrocketing container costs um, and terminal access charges and the like and also an availability of containers definitely has an impact on how we export grains and over the past um, years we have, have seen a transition from some commodities um, you know, back into bulk pathways but from an industry perspective what we really want is to make sure that we've got as many options as possible and that we can export bulk grains as well as containerised grains. And what we've seen in the last couple of years was such big production years that those supply chains have been at capacity. So we really want to make sure the container option remains a viable one. So you talked about the skyrocketing rocketing costs. Um, does that get passed back to growers? Absolutely. Transport costs and fees and charges always come back um, to, to the grower. And often we're competing with um, other countries um, into key markets and they often have a relatively lower transport cost. So for Australian grains to be competitive on international markets, we need to make sure that our costs 
from Australia are as low as possible so our competitiveness remains. And reports like um, this from the Productivity Commission give us options and give us ways to try to make sure that those prices remain in check. Industrial relations is a really tricky issue and grain growers is by no means um, taking sides versus employers or employees, but it absolutely highlights that we need these industrial relations frameworks to function uh, effectively so that ports don't grind to a halt. What we saw last year with the Spitzer issue was, you know, almost our ports came to a standstill uh, and that was going to have real uh, consequences for our importers and exporters, uh, which ultimately has consequences for Australian consumers and the economy at large. And that's certainly something that the agricultural sector isn't immune to. Um, so we really welcome the findings from this report that give the government some options uh, and some ways to try to address these issues to make sure that ports can continue to function as effectively as possible. What COVID showed is how vulnerable our supply chains are. There's many parts of our supply chains um, that we can't control, but these sorts of issues highlighted in the Productivity Commission report um, are things that we absolutely can control if, if the government's willing to, to start to implement some of these important changes. So the Productivity Commission did uh, make several recommendations around changes to the Fair Work Commission and the industrial relations system in general, but they also looked at implementing, or they suggested implementing a mandatory industry code, um, which would be enforced by the ACCC. What do you make of that and how viable is that? Well, there's lots of different views about the effectiveness of codes and whether they're voluntary and mandatory and things like that. But what it definitely does do um, is it gives the ACCC a, a formal role uh, and it lets um, a process of review um, and a check and balance occur on a regular basis, which is really important. So when you have critical infrastructure like ports and when you have you know, a relatively small number uh, of operators in that space, some mechanism that actually allows... Uh, oversight and reporting uh, in a timely fashion is really important because that can help keep prices in check and it helps ena enable transparency um, so that users um, you know, can have confidence that those prices uh, and charges are fair and reasonable um, and they're not the behest of the operator. So I think stuff like that is, is really important. Um, having a, a greater scope um, you know, for the Fair Work Commission to have a greater role in the, in the ports to help ensure that that protracted industrial relations dispute doesn't actually overflow into the whole system grinding to a halt. Uh, we had a fascinating instance last year where due to um, industrial relations issues at Fremantle Port, um, machinery imports were being diverted to Melbourne and then road freighted back across the Nullarbor uh, into Western Australia at considerable cost um, and exacerbating time delays, stuff like that. Um, is madness in this day and age. The ports are so critical, um, for, and as I said, for inputs in and for exports out, so we need them to continue to function. Just with a potential mandatory code, that has obviously been implemented in the dairy industry, and last year we saw the very first prosecution around that new legislation. Do you think it is possible for that to operate across the, all the different industries that operate through a port? Look, I think there's so much um, nuance industry to industry, so I don't know if I'd make, I'd make a comment of that nature, but it gives a formal oversight mechanism and it allows the ACCC uh, to undertake a regular review and to provide that transparent and timely reporting, which we see that in the grains industry with the wheat port code. Um, does it solve all of the problems in the grain industry? No, but it does enable constant reporting and feedback from a, a really well-trusted entity like the ACCC, which is a fantastic first step. Grain Growers Limited spokesman Zach Whale speaking with Emma Field. Brooke Neindorf with you today. It's 20 minutes past 12. 
You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, the impact of last year's floods and an extremely wet spring across southern Australia has hit the hay industry, with low supply meaning some high prices for farmers if they manage to cut a crop. Jumbuck Ag Hay Analyst says it's been one of the most difficult seasons in years on the east coast, particularly for Victorian growers. Incredibly difficult boggy, complicated, you know, people pulling their hair out trying to to make hay amongst um, weekly rainfall events throughout October and November. We've never had a year like it. It's thrown up some of the um, worst quality hay um, that we've had in years. In some places it's caused record levels of poor quality hay, particularly in southern Victoria. It's also pinned back a lot of the um, acreage that we could actually access and um, the production's down in, in other more northern areas. So how's that impacting supply and prices? In the short term, there's been a lot of activity from brokers accumulating for domestic clients uh, and hay exporters very keen to sort of accumulate open hay in particular for their, their export hay plant because they, they have to have hay to put through it and that's meant that there's been an escalation in prices. You know, you've got a very broad range of prices, good quality open hay with less than 40 millimetres of rain selling for as high as $320 a tonne on farm right down to the poorest quality hay that's been through the ringer had 180 or 200 mils of rain and, um, you know, you can get 170 a tonne on farm for that kind of stuff. So this is ex-farm Victorian Mallee and Wimmera, for instance. So very wide range of prices this year. And what's the outlook like for the next few weeks and, and months of the year? That's what everybody is asking and that's in the lap of the gods, if you like, in terms of weather and the forecast is for wetter than average still... But uh, I honestly don't think that there's um, some... It's a very good time to be doing climate forecasts for the next three months. They tend to be a little bit less accurate this time of the year than others. It all comes down to when is going to be the autumn autumn break? Is it going to be the classic sort of uh, April 25 sort of Anzac Day, which um, is, is a lovely timing, which will get the pastures kicked off early and allow extended... Early grazing and, and ease the demand for hay, uh, but if it's if it's hot and dry and that autumn break is extended out into May and June, there could be a, a real shortage of hay this year, particularly quality and hay prices for decent quality hay are already very high. I don't think they'll go much higher, honestly. But I think any um, delay in the autumn break will probably lift the prices for the poorer quality hay because it'll be the roughage that um, the stock will be looking for. Jumbuck Ag, Ag Analyst Colin Pearce ending that report by Sarah Lawrence. Now, just uh, before we head to the weather, the SA Country Fire Service has remained on scene uh, throughout the night at a large haystack fire of approximately 500 bales and will continue to do so for today and into this evening. The fire is continuing to produce a large amount of smoke over the area, particularly the Old Prince's Highway. So the haystack has been significantly reduced in size, but further breaking down and, and extinguishing of it will continue today. So community are just reminded to drive with care on the Old Prince's Highway due 
to smoke and emergency service vehicles working in the area. There's currently no threat to the community, um, but just as a precaution, anyone nearby who suffer from respiratory or cardiac conditions may wish to stay indoors with all doors and windows closed. For more information, you can go to the CFS website, cfs.sa.gov.au, or contact the Bushfire Information Hotline on 1300 362 361. Let's head to the weather now and uh, to find out more, we're joined by Senior Forecaster Mark Analak. Good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon, Brooke. What's happening around the uh, around the state in the next couple of days? It's looking pretty warm. Oh, hot, hot, hot is, is I guess, <laughs> what you could say in short. Uh, look, at the moment we do see some very warm conditions, particularly across the uh, north of the state as we speak. Generally, temperatures are hovering in the uh, sort of mid to high 30s across the pastoral districts at the moment, expected to reach into the low 40s uh, later this afternoon. And uh, across the far north as well, those warmer conditions mixed with a little bit of moisture uh, are likely to see some thunderstorms popping up, particularly about the far northwest corner and uh, the northeast corner. In fact, as I speak, I can see a thunderstorm's just started up just northeast of Moomba. Further south, uh, we do have south-southeasterly winds, just bringing temperatures a little bit milder, but uh, still quite warm. Temperatures hovering around the mid to high 20s across southern agricultural areas, reaching up into the low to mid 30s across northern agricultural areas as we speak. And this afternoon, they are expected to get a little bit uh, warmer, uh, with temperatures reaching into the high 30s across uh, those northern agricultural areas. Um, Really, the situation doesn't change tomorrow. If anything, the winds turn a little bit more northerly, so that'll give us a couple more degrees of warmth. So another warm day tomorrow. Um, The showers and thunderstorms are still likely to persist across the far north of the state, but southern parts of the state, including the agricultural areas, are likely to remain dry uh, and hot. By the time we get to Saturday, um, those northerly winds will continue to bring hot temperatures into um, sort of the southern parts of the state, and some parts of the agricultural area will see temperatures of the order of 8 to 14 degrees above average for this time of year. So a very hot day forecast for agricultural areas on Saturday. Um, combined with a, with a sort of a change making its way across the west of the state uh, during the afternoon. So a hot start to the day, but a change bringing in milder conditions overnight, Sunday night into, uh, so Saturday night into Sunday um, for agricultural areas. That change uh, is expected to see sort of elevated fire danger ratings because of the stronger winds with, associated with that change on Saturday and, and hot temperatures. So um, again, the next few days, very hot conditions are forecast and uh, sort of culminating on Saturday with elevated fire dangers as well. Moving into Sunday, I mentioned that the sort of cooler conditions across the south, that'll only be very temporary. Uh, so Sunday will be slightly milder across agricultural areas following the change. Northern parts of the state remaining quite warm with showers and thunderstorms persisting. And on Monday, that the, the winds, the southerly winds, very quickly turn northerly, so that we have another warm day on Monday and into Tuesday. So, very, very temporary relief um, of you know just one day of, of cooler temperatures for agricultural areas. But um, early next week, we see those northerly winds bringing back very hot conditions and uh, showers and thunderstorms across much of the state uh, early next week. 
Uh, just quickly ahead, looking ahead to sort of Wednesday, Thursday next week, a more significant change is likely to bring cooler conditions to, to the entire state, so we're certainly awaiting that one. In terms of rainfall amounts, um, I've, I've talked a lot about showers and thunderstorms uh, across parts of the state. Um, it's one of those situations where we can expect very patchy um, falls and uh, and quite variable falls as well. But in general, uh, if you encounter a shower or thunderstorm in the next couple of days, probably more like two to two to ten millimetres, possibly up to twenty millimetres in the far north of the state with those thunderstorms uh, ticking across the north. But all in all, I think most people can expect uh, generally dry conditions, very hot. Um, becoming quite humid early next week and uh, maybe a rumble of Thunderbrook. One to keep an eye out for, Mark. Thanks very much for your time and uh, keep cool. Thank you. See ya. That was Mark Analak, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Let's have a look at the uh, Western Inlands for tomorrow. Upper Western, partly cloudy with a slight chance of a shower, most likely in the afternoon and evening. Chance of a thunderstorm. Uh, overnight temperatures falling to the low to mid-20s, with daytime temperatures reaching around 40. Lower Western, mostly sunny. Slight chance of a shower in the Far East and uh, near zero chance elsewhere. Chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast. Overnight temperatures falling to between 90 and 23 with daytime temperatures reaching around 40. Plenty more to come on the Country Hour on this Thursday afternoon. Make sure you stay around. We're going to head to uh, to the Jervois region very shortly to hear how they're going with the current flood situation. But it's, uh, it's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Thanks very much for your company on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up over the next half an hour or so, we're going to head to Jervois, just down from Murray Bridge, as they play the waiting game with the floodwaters. Also, on just day two of the Gold Coast Magic Millions yelling sale, their all-time record has fallen. We were we were very excited, uh, you know, when the opening bid of a million came, and, and you know that was a relief. And then to see the uh, competition then really kick in from there, as, as uh, you know, she got to 1.8, they bid the two million. And then they kicked on from there to, you know, to go to 2.6. It was quite spectacular. So some big money for that filly at the Magic Millions. But I want to hear from you today. If you're paying big bucks for a horse like that, what would you call it? 0467 Would love to hear your best high-priced ponies' names. But before that, let's get the latest from the newsroom. And we're joined by Evelyn Leckie. Good afternoon, Ev. Good afternoon, Brooke. Making news this hour. Tributes and condemnations continue following the death of Australia's Catholic Cardinal George Pell. He was remembered with a mass at St Patrick's Cathedral in his hometown of Ballarat, where ribbons have been tied to the fence as a sign of support for sexual assault victims. The Victorian Premier has ruled out hosting a state funeral for the Cardinal. 
A federal Green senator wants the federal government to hold an inquiry into land clearing for cotton in the Northern Territory. Questions have been raised over the NT government's land clearing oversight after satellite images show masses of land have been cleared without a permit. And British musician Jeff Beck, considered to be one of the world's greatest guitarists, has died aged 78. The former member of the Yardbirds died after contracting bacterial meningitis. More ABC News at 1 o'clock. Thanks very much, Evelyn. Evelyn Leckie with the latest from the newsroom. Now, it's just a waiting game and it has been for weeks. That's the feeling amongst locals at Jervois down from Murray Bridge as they wait for the floodwaters to rise. Kate Bartlett is a dairy farmer in the Jervois Irrigation District and says the waiting is taking a toll on many, but the support has been fantastic. I caught up with her a little bit earlier today about how things are currently looking at her place. At the moment, looking out my window, I'm seeing lots of sunshine, green grass, a levee and then lots of water. The water's been slowly rising down in this area. You'd have to say probably a couple of months it's taken. We're not at peak yet, so it's still got a long way to rise. Or I wouldn't say a long way. It must be getting very close. So it's just a real waiting game, isn't it? It is, it, it, and it has been for you know six weeks or more. We've heard the, the water coming across the border through the riverland. It's coming down. So it's just sort of waiting and people say, you know, oh, it's good, it's given you lots of time to prepare and, and be ready for it. But mentally, you can't prepare for it and you can't be ready for it. You've, you know, you're, you're hoping that this piece of levee bank that's straight in front of your farm and here at Jervois, it's, it's 21 kilometres long. You're hoping that it's, it's right, it's good and you don't need to be prepared or how far do you prepare? And what has that meant for, for your, your mental health? Are you, are you getting much sleep at night thinking about what, what might be happening outside? Some nights you sleep really well because you're exhausted and other nights, you know, if you get an hour and a half sleep, you've, you've done well. Probably as it's getting closer, there's certainly been more good nights and then bad nights. You know, it's a real swing to how you're feeling and what's happening on the river. You know, as soon as we get a southerly, your mind starts playing. And with a southerly wind, we get a large amount of water that shifts out of the lakes and up the river. So our height can not only have the flood um, level, we have a wind level that could go up to a foot within an hour or quicker, um, you know, so that's a 40 centimetre rise due to just the, the wind blowing the long, wrong way. So southerlies are not wanted, not needed, and can go away for the next three or four months would be great. Tell us about the levy that, that you've got there. So we are a um, government-owned levy here at Jervois. There's four um, areas within the Lower Murray below Manham that are still have levies that have held. Of that four, two are government-owned and two are privately-owned. And um, here at Jervois, we're government, so um, our levy um, has just need maintenance on it. We haven't had to build a levy from scratch. We've been very lucky in that way. And what is that levy protecting at the moment? So, um, for personally, it's for us, it's protecting 93 um, hectares of pasture land. But um, the whole of Jervois, I think there's about 1,500 hectares of of land straight behind, you know, the levee that is pasture-based or or used by farmers. And how many farms would be, would be there? Is it, and is it mainly dairy farms? So in the Jervois Irrigation District, there's seven dairy farms, all but one, I think, has the next generation working on it, plus employees, and they all are, um, use pasture in their diet or are pure pasture-based, and they all um, produce milk that goes to a, a number of different, when don't all go to one manufacturer. We have our fingers, everyone supplies a few different manufacturers in the area and um, 
I think just about everyone in Jervois is a second or third generation, or if they're like us, a fourth generation uh, dairy farm that's been running. There's a horse stud, a couple of cattle studs, and a, and hay hay grower here just in the area that I'm in, yeah, here at Jervois. You touched on this a, a bit before, Kate, but how quickly could things change for you if the floods, uh, if the water keeps rising? There's two things with the levee bank. You have the rise of the water, so that's the height that the top of the levee will be with the water. So then if it gets, the water gets too high, you get an overtop, which then um, starts hurting the top of the levee bank. Hurting's not the right word, but destroying the top of the levee bank. You can also get a breach, which is when there's a crack or a hole and water starts flowing through the levee bank. Both of those do damage, but the hole is the bigger damage because as soon as it, if you don't, someone doesn't spot a hole or a little trickle of water, it grows and grows and grows. So anywhere along the 21 kilometres at Jervois, once there's one hole or one area that starts um, leaking and if it's not fixed straight away, it sees the whole area go through. So one one hole in an, at that 21 kilometres affects the whole area. And is that levy check sort of each day for, for little cracks or, or um, holes that you're talking about? We're a, a trust at Jervois, so there's some a uh, few of the guys have been going out morning and night and checking the whole levy bank, doing a drive, uh, checking the condition, if they're spotting something, uh, talking to government, uh, whether they can repair it or whether it's something that we need to do. It's a, a bit hard how far you can go with it being a government levy, but both parties are trying to work together. So there's been work done as as things have happened. Is it a smooth process? It's not always a smooth process, but it's a process that's ongoing and it's the same in all government-owned areas. So we're pretty lucky in the sense that the guys are checking it, the government is also checking it. I understand they're doing some drone, even checking in areas where they're not comfortable, maybe driving up there or want to check in a bit quicker. So there's lots of checking going on as long as... And also, you know, when you go to bed at night, you look out your back door or front door, in our case, and think, yep, it's still there. And, you know, through the night, you might wake up once or twice and look out the window and think, yeah, I can't see anything reflect. My husband just says, I'm not going to see anything reflect in the night, but my brain still says, yep, there's nothing there. (laughs) I'm speaking with dairy farmer Kate Bartlett from uh, Jervois. Kate, if the water does go over the levee, have you got somewhere you can take your dairy cattle? So we're lucky. We have the levee bank and then we have our pastures. We then have a small road and then our dairy and house. So our dairy and house can't be affected by the water. It would need to come up above 56, like way above. So we're safe with our dairy and our house and our shedding is all safe. It's Our, our pastures are purely what we feed our cows. So for our cows, it means they would need to be moved off their feed because it'll be obviously underwater, along with their stock pumps for water. And they'll be walking um, across Jervois Road morning and night, which is becoming busier with the ferries closing down. Wellington's closed and um, Jervois is a bit hit and miss, so that the Jervois Road has become a lot busier. So for us to move our cows across Jervois Road instead of it being a one-person job will become three people because people don't stop for roads that signs that say cattle on road or stock on road. They just drive through, so we'll need to have a person at each end plus someone pushing the cows across. Uh, We need to have water, and we've had to have additional water connected to those paddocks just in case. We didn't feel we had enough pressure to to support for over 400 head of cattle, so we've got extra water lines going up there. We're going on to SA Mains water, so um, 
what you pay for water in your house is the same as what we'll be paying to feed our, uh, to water our cows. A cow can drink 200, 250 litres of water a day, so there's a big expense there. We will have to go to looking around about 120 bales of hay a week will need to be fed to keep the stock stock going, so we'll have to buy that in. We don't, don't have that fodder on hand, but we'll still have a dairy to milk them in and we'll still have a safe house, and we're very lucky. We, we don't have the concerns that other people have had with regard to their housing or, in, or dairies, and um, no, we're still pretty lucky. Even if we're going to have to do what we have to do, we, we have options available. Kate, just finally, I've been hearing about uh, you know all the fantastic support that's been happening in, in other areas of the state that are being affected by by flooding and, and uh, people putting their hands up to help out with that, with milking at other dairy farms. What's the support been like in, in Jervois? Farming-wise, we haven't needed the support in on our own individual properties. We are farming as normal. Other areas have had it so tough and so hard. And Jervois is, is is lucky. We have a good community around us. So if something happens, we know we'll have the community support to help us. Areas like Woods Point have had a fantastic community support with their um, sandbagging days when they've needed it. Monteith has been the same, and River Glen has quietly been going along. So the four four districts that are left have had great community support. And we also look up river where you look at Maipalonga and the support they've had as a community because not only when their levy goes were their farms affected that had to move and have you know, there's been life changing decisions had to be made at, at Maipalonga. But also housing was something that was an issue in Maipalonga. So people's houses have had to be sandbagged. And the community has just got behind it. You know, they've even got to the stage now where they're having once a week, there's a coffee where people can just drop in and have a coffee and and just have a chat with a local. And they're looking at doing a sad day with just the kids from the local community. So to me, that's what country living is all about, is when times are tough, you all get together and and work as a community. And if if your neighbour, even if they're not your irrigation district, the irrigation district next door needs someone to go and help them sandbag, you go and help even if you can only do an hour or an hour. And so, you know, when I was up in one of the sandbagging lots, it was just fantastic to see ladies, that mature ladies that are, are very well retired, were bringing up biscuits and bringing water up, along with gentlemen of the same era. You know, to lift their sandbags, not easy, but they were helping by holding the sandbags so that someone could tie them. And just, just to have the community there, young kids trying to shovel sand in the sandbags you know that's that's country living and and we haven't lost that I think times like this it was shown during the drought and I think it's showing now you know the community is fantastic I just would like to have a little peg in there two things people that are going and having a look at the floods that's fantastic but please remember if you're going across a bridge don't stop and take photographs because you are going to cause an accident and number two levy banks are not to be driven on not to be driven up the side of and not to be walked along by people wanting to get a good photo shoot for for media or for um, Instagram or Facebook, any of those things. And if you see a farmer on a levy bank, they're probably doing a job checking it or or organising something to do with their farm. So don't just think if there's somebody else there, you're allowed to go there. And my next thing would be when this water recedes, we need people from all areas to go and help those along the river that have been affected, whether it be a household land, even a local park in a council area, people are going to need help to get it cleaned up and that's where we'd love people to come out and give a hand. You know, if everyone that's visited and had a look now comes and does an hour or two or a morning with someone along the river, that would be fantastic. 
That was Kate Bartlett, dairy farmer in the Jervois Irrigation District. And, uh, yeah, just a few key points there. Uh, just if you're out and about having a look, make sure you do stay safe and you stay off those levees just to make sure that they uh, remain uh, stable. And uh, also, yeah, when it comes to that clean-up, um, they're going to need a lot of help in the uh, in these regions that are affected by floods. And we've seen it before with the country getting together uh, with bushfires and that in the past. So, um, yeah, there'll be more information down the track about how you can help out uh, when these uh, flood waters do start dropping. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's coming up to 17 minutes to one. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, very shortly, we're going to hear about the uh, record that was broken at the Magic Millions uh, horse sale on the Gold Coast and uh, $2.6 million. But I want to hear from you, 0467 991 What would you call a horse if you had bought it for a couple of million dollars? I'd love to hear your suggestions. So we'll get to that one very shortly. But before that, have you seen more carp around if you live near or often visit the River Murray? The head of a fishing conservation charity says the federal government should release the carp herpes virus to stop mass spawning of the pest as floodwaters recede. Ausfish Chief Executive Craig Copeland says volunteers are ready to help with any possible fish rescues in South Australia after finishing work in Victoria. Thursda have given us a permit to rescue fish and to assist the communities in that exercise. So hopefully it doesn't have to happen, but uh, we're ready to go if we need to. And yes, yeah, so uh, you're saying you haven't had to act on those permits yet. So there hasn't been any blackwater or fish kills reported yet at this stage? No, the South Australian government have got a pretty good water quality data logger system in place throughout the Murray. And the reports uh, from those data loggers indicate that while the water quality is not fantastic, it's certainly not really distressing, so fish can survive in it. And uh, and it's being maintained like that for the last week or so. So it's, I guess it's just fingers crossed at this stage and, uh, and hopefully it doesn't transpire like it did in the Murray. I, is there any ideas or forecasting at this stage on, on when uh, any of the, those events could occur if they do occur, of the water quality yeah, dropping? The date of, or the timing of it is hard to predict. It will depend on flows from upstream and it'll depend on water leaving the floodplain. So it's when the water leaves the floodplain the, the issues will transpire. But at the moment there's still plenty of water out across the floodplain. So but when that occurs, that's when we'll be, everyone will be looking at the black water and seeing what impact it's having on water quality. How have fish rescue efforts been across the border in Victoria uh, with some black water events? Uh, well, they've been quite, in our view, they've been really, it's really heartening to see. Fishers just volunteer their time to, to rescue fish, particularly Murray crayfish, which are threatened. So that's really good. And, the, and that's, that's work. And fisheries have actually put quite a few of those uh, Murray crayfish back in the water, so back where they came from. So it's been a really good exercise. And are those efforts still ongoing? No, they've stopped. Water quality has improved, so the efforts have stopped. How much are you hearing about carp spawning events? Well... 
there we're hearing a lot of a lot about that, and unfortunately, it is an exercise that uh, I think everyone wants to see addressed. There is a mechanism to deal with it, which is the carp um, herpes virus, which will have a really you know, negative effect on carp and not a negative effect on anything else. And uh, I think the sooner we introduce that, the better. Yeah, because the government did finally release a, a paper looking into the research and said more research should be needed. But, yeah, you think think that research should be done soon or, or a virus developed soon and released? Well, the, the impact of that of the carp on native fish is huge. And uh, the, we want our fishery to return. We need to reduce the, the carp population. How much are you hearing that carp are spawning more than usual? Are, are there just a lot more carp than usual with the high water around and as it starts to recede? So there's a lot of carp around and they're just responding to that situation. It's, it's a perfect situation for them and away they go. And if anyone was, does want to get involved with Ausfish, um, how do they go about doing that? Just uh, look, at, look at our website. There'll be, as soon as if there's something happens, uh, there'll be some messages out there on social media uh, or just go to ausfish.org.au and there'll be some messages there. Ausfish Chief Executive Craig Copeland speaking with Eliza Burlage. And the ABC has reached out to the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt for comment on the CARP. A Federal Ag Department spokesperson says more research and stakeholder consultation is needed before proceeding further with the CARP virus, a process which would take several years to complete. And the statement says the Australian Government will work with local and state authorities to tackle the ongoing threat of common CARP with pest fish populations likely to increase amid major flooding. Now, farmers in the United States using John Deere machinery now have the right to repair their own farm equipment. It comes after the machinery manufacturer and the American Farm Bureau Federation signed a memorandum of understanding this week. It will enable individuals to buy software tools that would allow them to take their equipment to a dealer of their choice to fix the gear. Here in Australia, though, there's no such arrangements in place just yet. And that's meant farmers are often left with software malfunctions that can leave very expensive machinery sitting idle in paddocks during busy times. Fiona Simpson is the president of the National Farmers Federation, and she hopes the latest development in the US will pave the way for reform here in Australia. Look, we know that John Deere has announced that it signed an MOU with the American Farm Bureau Uh, which will guarantee farmers basically the right to repair John Deere equipment through accessing some of the software that is so important to actually work out what's wrong with the equipment and get it going again. Uh, At the moment, we only understand that it applies to John Deere and John Deere equipment, but that's certainly a massive step forward for those American farmers. Okay. Arrangements like this still don't exist in Australia? No, they don't. And it's very frustrating. It's something that the National Farmers Federation and our members in every state and a commodity group have been calling for now for a number of years. We really believe that it puts farmers at a complete disadvantage, particularly at peak times like harvest when things can go wrong with machinery and they can't even actually access a local technician to work out what's wrong with it, let alone fix it themselves because of the onerous agreements that they, the manufacturers have put in place. Now, this isn't a new issue. It's something the NFF has long lobbied for. The Productivity Commission held an inquiry into right to repair in 2021, but there has been no formal regulatory changes. So what is the state of play in Australia? 
The state of play here, 12 months on from the Productivity Commission releasing their report in December 2021, recommending wholesale changes and, and um, actually legislative changes has not changed at all. We've continued our conversations with the manufacturers and these conversations obviously are ongoing, but basically it's the same situation for farmers in Australia now as it was, and that's when their machinery breaks down. They need, need to go through the uh, appropriate technician as advised by their dealer or their manufacturer and not access local technicians themselves. Right. I'm keen to clarify whether you're keen to see government-led reform in this space. So would you be keen to see a similar MOU struck between machinery manufacturers like John Deere and, say, organisations like the NFF here in Australia? Well, look, I think we really are in favour of government-led reform. This is a competition issue. This is seriously impacting farmers on farms in regional and rural communities every single day. It's creating a monopoly situation in some communities and it's anti-competitive. So we really think that to achieve the wholesale change that we need in the space, we do need an ask, and we've written again to the government today to ask that they lead in this reform. Uh, If we do it like the US, then it's manufacturer by manufacturer manufacturer with voluntary agreements and voluntary codes and it really doesn't achieve the same outcome in as quick a time as if we had government change in the space. Failing that, of course, we'll continue to talk to to John Deere, to Case IH, to our major manufacturers here in Australia to see if we can also strike the same agreement as our American colleagues have done in the Farm Bureau. So you've written to government, what is on the wish list and what is the time frame that you're hoping for this to be implemented? Well, seriously, 12 months on, we know we've had a change of government in that space, but we it is something that has been ongoing for a number of years. We do need reform now and it needs to be led by government. Uh, it needs to be changing the re- relevant legislation to make sure that Australian farmers can actually be treated in the same way that their American colleagues are. Uh, Otherwise, it's a competition issue. You know, we are actually incurring costs and difficulties and breakdowns here on farms that our American colleagues are not. And it's actually just putting us at a complete disadvantage. So for you, it's about levelling the playing field. For for me, it's definitely about levelling the playing field for farmers, promoting competition in our small rural and regional communities, allowing farmers to actually get on and do the repairs on their machinery in a timely manner, when often time is of the essence in terms of harvest particularly and and weather events happening. Um, And it's also, of course, ultimately a level playing field across the world, which is what Australia always calls for in terms of uh, trade and uh, the way that we conduct our business globally these days. Do you hope that this development out of the US puts the fire under the government to take this issue seriously? I certainly hope so. And uh, I also hope that it puts the fire under the manufacturers. We have been talking to them for a long time now. We know that they certainly are very active in our rural and regional communities. Their dealerships play an important role in our communities. But we also need to recognise that sometimes it's just not possible for that to occur. And farmers need the right to be able to fix their machinery when it breaks down, to need to need the right to be able to access that important software to to make sure that they can keep their machinery going and also to promote competition in some of our rural and regional communities. Has there been much pushback from the machinery manufacturers here in Australia when this conversation has come up? No, not at all. Uh, actually, it's something that they've been actively interested in exploring. Uh, but as I say, these conversations have been ongoing for a number of years now. Uh, and perhaps COVID has played a part. But certainly we will be now going to our colleagues again and saying, this has happened in America. Why not Australia? 
Fiona Simpson, President of the National Farmers Federation, speaking with Jessica Hayes. Now, just on day two of the Gold Coast Magic Millions yearling sale, their all-time record has fallen. A New South Wales Hunter Valley filly swept in to sell for $2.6 million, 400000 more than the old record set more than a decade ago. Upper Hunter reporter Amelia Bernasconi reports on the sale. For $2,600,000. Congratulations. As the hammer fell, so did the 15-year-old Magic Millions yearling record. A zoo star solar charge filly from the hunter's wooden stud soared past the former record of 2.2 million set by two Redoute's choice colts in 2008. As, as you can imagine, it's um, lost for words. Anthony Thompson is the owner of Widden Stud and says the team is thrilled with the result of their super filly, but he says there was a lot of interest and pressure in the lead-up. We were we were very excited, uh, you know, when the opening bit of a million came, and, and you know that was a relief. And then to see the uh, competition then really kick in from there, as, as uh, you know, she got to 1.8, they bid the two million, and then they kicked on from there, to, you know, to go to 2.6. It was quite spectacular. So. A, a real thrill. Um, the teams, you know, worked so hard uh, to, you know, with all the parades. I think she'd had over 300 um, inspections up here this week. The build-up was really big. The, the pressure was on. But you're never exactly sure what is going to transpire at, a, at an auction. Um, but to see the competition um, right around the ring from the major global players in the industry on that filly um, makes us very proud of you know our whole team and everything we do at Widden. Lot 399's full sister has also graced the record books. Sunlight is a three-time Group 1 winner. She sold for $4.2 million at Magic Millions annual broodmare sale back in 2020. So I guess you could say big money's in their blood. You'll never get another chance to buy her. We sold the full brother last year for $3 million, uh, at the East Ealing sales to Coolmore. He was a pretty um, spectacular colt, and we thought this filly was every bit as good. Um, you know, there is a bit of a premium probably for a colt, so uh, our expectations um, uh, weren't, you know, quite to that level. Or certainly, um, we were thinking whether she'd make 1.5 or 2 million, but to see her make 2.6 um, in, a, in a, you know, a wonderful bidding duel was was really really exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, she could well be. She is very likely to be the absolute best filly to be offered for sale in Australia all year. Possibly, ladies and gentlemen, the best to ever walk through this sale ring. The filly was purchased by Yulong Investments, based in Victoria. You might recall that name. They also purchased the most expensive beef animal ever sold, a $400,000 Wagyu heifer back in April last year. But with a firm focus on racing, Yulong's chief operating officer, Sam Fairgray, told Racing.com they were there to buy lot 399. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, obviously, she has a great physique and uh, with a fantastic page. So you don't uh, very often get the opportunity to buy a filly like this. So, uh, yeah, thrilled. When you're buying uh, quality, you're, you're always going to have to pay. But um, you know, with, with the prize money in Australia, um, you know, being able to access a filly with great residual like this, and uh, you know, if she could be here uh, this time next year and races like the Golden Slipper, um, you know, she's she's going to have uh, great value. Uh, you know, whatever she does. Day three of the sale has only just started, and Magic Millions managing director Barry Bowditch isn't ruling out more lots nudging records. 
it'll be a tough one to beat. There is a cult. There is a cult on Friday that you know just may get there. But uh, look, I just think it's it's fantastic. Our average is up on last year. We're we're selling eighty seven percent of the horses we're offering, and uh, you know our gross numbers, you know, almost in line with last year, which is a sensational start to the week. Congratulations. Mr. Zhang, you long. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That was Managing Director of Magic Millions, Barry Bowditch, ending that report from Amelia Bernasconi. And you can see that fairly online at the ABC Rural website or the Facebook page. And uh, I put the call out uh, asking, what would you call a horse if you spent $2.6 million on it? I got a text through here from Joe and Ash from Port Lincoln. They have said we would call it. Should have kept that money. I can hear that uh, heading towards the finish line. <laughs> Joe and Ash, thanks very much for your text. Also had a text from Maggie from Wakery. She said she'd call it Barbie, but also would like to point out Maggie is also four, so that's the reason she would call it that. So that's what we've got time for on the uh, show today. Thanks very much for uh, for your company. I'll be back with you at the same time tomorrow. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.